This morning we are continuing a sermon series entitled A Powerful Force through which we are considering a biblical view of femininity. The goal of this sermon series is, as always, to interpret and apply God's word. In this case, those texts which deal with femininity or womanhood. But also, a secondary goal, and this specifically for our ladies here and young ladies here, I pray that as a result of this series of sermons that you will have a new or increased clarity, gratitude, and confidence. Clarity that you would clearly understand your identity and your purpose as a woman, who you are and what you have been designed for. Gratitude, that your new or increased understanding would result in thankfulness and confidence that you would feel equipped and inspired and energized to do what God has designed you to do. So no surprise, the Bible will continue to be our textbook Not a particular teacher, not a dictionary or encyclopedia, not the university or science or feminism, but the Bible. And the Bible, because the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is God's revelation to us. Everything that God has decided we need to know in order to live this life, He has given us. In His Word. So the Bible will continue to be our textbook. In it we find everything we need to know about this subject. And in this Bible this morning, as you know, our primary text will be 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, where we will find that a woman is for glory. And next week, we will look at marriage, and then in the final week of this series, we'll look at motherhood. But before I say anything else, before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us here today beneath you uh, to open up your word together now and to honor you and glorify you through the preaching of your word. So help me to speak well and to preach well and help us to understand a very difficult passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, would you please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're using one of the church Bibles that we have here, you can find under the seat in front of you. You'll find 1 Corinthians 11 on page 622. Last week, last week we asked and answered, if you remember, those of you who were here, two foundational questions. And so I'd like to begin this morning by summarizing what we found. 
So if you weren't here last week, you'll be brought right up to speed. The first question was, what is a woman? And we found the answer in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, which says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what is a woman? A woman is a created image bearer of God. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. A woman is a created image bearer of God. In fact, you heard it, man also, according to Genesis chapter 1, is a created image bearer of God, which means... As men and women were told, they're both created in the image of God, that this is the biblical basis for the equality of men and women. Men and women alike are both image bearers of God. They are both given moral responsibility. They are both objects of God's love and grace. And so, Christians... As long as there have been Bible-reading Christians have promoted and believed in the equality of men and women. Men are not superior to women, and women are not superior to men. However, and here is where we part ways with culture at large, being equal does not necessitate being the same. So men and women can be equal and not be the same. And the loudest message today is, in order for men and women to be equal, they need to be the same, but they're not. We see this, we learn this from God's Word, that men and women, though equal, have been created distinct. They've been created very, very different. And listen... For a reason. It's not random. Men and women have been created by God different for a reason. So while at one level there is no distinction, at another level there is a distinction so significant between men and women that it determines a man and woman's purpose, role, and function in society the church, and the home. Which leads to the second question we asked last week. A very important question. So what is a woman for? How has God made her and why has God made her that way? What is the purpose? What is the function? And we came up with three answers. Now hear me say this, this is not all a woman is for, but this is at least what a woman is for. First, in Genesis 2.18, some of you remember this story. Before God created the first woman, he said, I will make him, that was Adam, the first man, I will make him a helper fit for him. So a woman is for help. Ladies, you have been built by God and designed by God to help. And that should not sound demeaning. 
If it does, remember that in the Bible, in places like Psalm 33, 20, God is called our what? Helper. It is a glorious title. It is in no way demeaning. Second, in Genesis 1, 28 and 2, 15, God tells us the first man and woman, he told them what their earthly responsibility is, and we're not going to go into it again, but we learned that it is, was and is, very hard work. Very hard work. Today especially, and I think in the weeks to come, I think it will become very clear how being a godly woman is very hard work. So here's what we have so far, ladies. You have been built and designed for help and for hard work. But not only that, we can get even more specific You have been designed to help and to work hard in a direction. Not to just help and hard work, there's there's more to it, but to actually help and to hard work in a direction. There is a focus. You've been built and designed to help and to work hard within boundaries. And you will be most liberated and you will be most fulfilled as you do what you have been designed by God to do in the direction you have been designed to do it. Let me say that again. Ladies, you will be most liberated and most fulfilled when you do what God has designed you to do in the direction God has designed you to do it. And your direction, your trajectory is the home. You are a home maker. You are a home builder. Again, it's sad we have to keep doing this. Again, unfortunately, this actually sounds demeaning to many. I'm so thankful for so many of the young women we have in this church who hear this and are charged up and are thankful and excited And energized by this. But you know, this is not a popular message. This sounds second rate. This sounds junior varsity. And remember, it sounds that way because historical feminism has largely succeeded in redefining the home and its place of importance. So if you feel that way, you're not getting that from God's word. That's not where we find that. The home is where a family lives and laughs and loves. Home is the soil where children grow. Home is where the next generation is raised up. Home is the foundation of any civilization. 
Home is where immortal souls are shaped to love and serve God. And we actually say stupid things like she's just a homemaker. Women, home needs you. You are irreplaceable in the home. You are indispensable. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. The home must be the focus of your help and hard work. And we talked a lot more about that last week. Qualified it. Described it in some different ways. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to listen. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. In Proverbs 31, the famous passage about a godly woman, the home is mentioned ten times and is the focus of all her work. In Paul's letter to Titus in 2, verses 3 through 5, he encourages the older women in the church to train the younger women to love their husbands and children and to be working at home. In his first letter to Timothy in 5, 9 through 10, he commands the church to take care of the widows who were good wives and mothers. And then in 5, 11 through 15, he encourages the young women to marry, bear children, and manage their households. So we see, what are we seeing? We see this homeward orientation introduced in Genesis before sin entered the world. We see it as normative throughout the entire Old Testament. And then we see it specifically encouraged in the New Testament. So again... What is a woman for? She is for helping. She is for hard work. She is for the home. And now this morning, as promised, I'd like to elaborate on something I mentioned last week, and that is that women, you are for glory. So here's the main point of today's sermon, and then two Clarifying statements. And this is where we're going today. Here is a main point, And then two clarifying statements. And I'm speaking, of course, to women. So here is the main point today. You are for glory. You are for glory. And we will understand that. And what that means by... Focusing then on these two clarifying statements. Number one, you are glory. And number two, you glorify. So there's the message. You are glory. You glorify. That's where we're going. So let me give you a working definition of glory. Since that's not a word we use a lot. So... If you hear me say, I would assume many of you, you are glory and you glorify. We may have different ideas of what that means. So here will be our working definition. Glory is the public display of God's infinite beauty and worth. Let's work with that today. Glory is the public display. So it's about being seen. 
Glory is the public display of God's infinite beauty and worth. And ladies, you, unlike anything else in all creation, are for glory. You are glory and you glorify. You are a display and you make other things display. You are beauty and you beautify. You are adornment and you adorn. Who you are as a woman and what you do as a woman is an ongoing sermon on the beauty and worth of God. Who you are and what you do is like this ongoing sermon without words, but just who you are and what you do is this ongoing sermon on the infinite beauty and worth of God. So we need to see this in God's word. And I've decided to go to one of the most difficult passages in the Bible 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. So let's look at this together. This is a fairly complicated passage. And so we're really going to have to concentrate. We're really going to have to think about this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'd like to read through it and make some interpretive comments as we go so that Lord willing, we'll have a basic understanding of what Paul is talking about here. And that way we'll be ready to pass out the head coverings next week. Why are you laughing? Normally we have some head coverings. I don't see any today. Kind of ruins one of my jokes, but first thing, context, context, okay, context is so important. Context means that when you're reading the Bible and you're reading verses, you need to read the verses before, the verses after, you need to know what book it's in, where it's in in the Bible, so that you can really grasp what is happening. If you take verses out of context, you're going you're gonna to make them say things that they don't actually say, and you're going to think they mean things that they don't actually mean. So context is things like, who is Paul talking to? When is Paul saying this? Where is Paul saying this? Things like that are very important to know. Whenever you're reading your Bible, they're going to be important here. So four very quick things regarding context. First, Paul is writing to first century Romans. That's going to mean something. Paul is writing to first century Romans. Second, Paul is giving instruction, and this will be made very clear in verses 17 and following, which we're not going to look at today, but if you wanted to, you could. It will be made very clear that this instruction Paul is giving is regarding a church worship service. Okay, he's taught like what we have going on right here, right now. The instruction is geared towards that. Third, Head coverings on women, remember this is first century Roman culture, first head coverings on women were a sign of marriage, not unlike a wedding ring. They're more obvious, but not unlike a wedding ring. They were a sign of marriage. And fourth, 
The men and women referred to in these verses are husbands and wives. Just those four things are going to help us. This is first century Roman church that this is being written to. Paul is giving instruction regarding a church worship service. Head coverings on women were a sign of marriage. And the men and women referred to in this passage are husbands and wives. So those are a few important things to know as we read along. Verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you, but I want you to understand. Here's basically what Paul just said. Good job, but I have a correction for you. There is something you need to understand. Now the rest of verse 3 is what Paul wants them, wants you and me, to understand. So let's read it. Let's read it prayerfully. We need God's help to understand this. Verse 3. I want you to understand. What does he want them to understand? That the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Headship always refers to authority in the Bible. Not like authority to boss around and authority to push around, but authority to love and serve. And whenever you see headship, that's what it's talking about. It's referring to that authority to love and serve, that authority to take sacrificial responsibility. So with this verse, verse 3, picture a totem pole. And try and make this visual. So I'd like you to picture a totem pole. God is at the top of this totem pole. And then Jesus, and then a husband, and then a wife. You heard that in the text. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of every man is Christ. And the head of Christ is God. So get that picture in your mind. So authority goes down. God, Jesus, husband, wife. So authority goes down and submission and honor go up. God the Father is in authority over God the Son. Christ is in authority over man. The husband is in authority over his wife. The wife submits to her husband. The husband submits to Christ. Christ submits to God. So authority is going down. Submission and honor is going up. Paul wants us to understand that it is the foundation for what he's going to say next. So get that in your mind. Authority going down, submission and honor going up. God the Father, God the Son, the husband, and then the wife. Now, ladies, please don't get bent out of shape about being at the bottom of the totem pole. Some may be tempted to think, here the Bible goes again with its misogynistic talk about women being inferior to men. That's not, believe me, you'll see, 
That is not what it's saying. So think about this totem pole. Let me, let me show you that that's not what it's talking about. It's not making a point. The point of this is not, see, see where you are, right? <laughs> At the very bottom of that totem pole, like the grass is growing. You can't even see you. You're right there in the dirt. That's not, that's not Paul's point. Let me show you. So think about, just think about the top half of the totem pole. Okay, you've got God the Father, God the Son, then you have the husband and the wife. So think about the top half where God the Father is in authority over God the Son, and the Son submits to the Father. All true. Does that mean they are not equal? Does that mean that God the Father is superior to God the Son? Absolutely not. That is Arian heresy. That is a denial of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. They are equals. And yet, there is willing submission within the Godhead. Now think about the bottom half of the totem pole. Where the husband is in authority over his wife and the wife submits to her husband. Does that mean that they are not equal? Of course not. Does that mean that the husband is superior to his wife? Of course not. According to Genesis 2.24, the husband and his wife, think about the Trinity. According to Genesis 2.24, the husband and his wife are one. They are equals. And yet there is willing submission within the marriage. In fact, Paul anticipates that whole stumbling block. And he says down, look with me, in verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. What is he saying? Men and women are equals. He anticipates the stumbling block, makes it clear again. Men and women are equals. Okay, so keep the totem pole in your mind. God, Christ, man, wife. And also keep this in mind. Paul is going to say the word head a lot. And it gets a little confusing because he doesn't always mean the same thing. So sometimes he means authority, like in verse 3. Father, the head of the son, husband, the head of the wife. Sometimes he means authority and sometimes he just means your head. So as we read it, you've got to keep that in mind. The context makes it very clear which he's talking about, but understand that going in. Verse 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies... Now, remember the context. Where is this taking place? In a worship service. With his head covered, dishonors his head. So there's the two heads, right? You saw that the first one is his physical head. And then the second one is his verse 3 head, his authority, Christ. I'm telling you, we got to think. So keep going with me. Verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head, that's her physical head, uncovered, dishonors her head, and that's her husband, according to verse 3, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So what's going on here? You have a... You have a bunch of husbands and wives in a first century Roman worship service. That's what we have here. 
bunch of husbands and wives in a first century worship service. And apparently, you've got these head coverings, some on the men and some on the women. And Paul is saying, men, don't wear a head covering because it dishonors Christ. And he's saying, ladies, wear a head covering because it honors your husband. Remember, it was a sign of what? It was a sign of marriage. Or look at verse 10, a symbol of authority. Here's the point. Here is, that's his instruction regarding head coverings. But here is the point. And, and most of you ladies can let out a sigh of relief. Because the point is not mandatory head coverings. When the church is gathered, when Christians are gathered, everything they do speaks. When the church is gathered, when Christians are gathered, everything they do speaks. Everything we do says something about what we believe right down to the way we dress. That is, if you will, the transcendent principle here. It it matters. Everything we do matters. You may read this and say, what is the big deal? Why is he going on in that context, in that culture, about head coverings? Everything we do matters. Everything we do speaks. Everything we do says something about what we believe, even down to the way we dress. So, what did head coverings say? That's the question. What did head coverings say in a first century Christian Roman Worship service. And I think there's a couple things Paul makes clear. But for the purpose of this sermon, we're just going to focus on one. So let's read verses 7 through 10. And again, we're asking, okay, what, what were these head coverings saying? What's the big deal here? Verses 7 through 10. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So first, let me point out something fairly obvious. In this worship service, who stands out? Just think about this. Should be fairly obvious. But in this worship service, who stands out? The men and the women do not blend together. This is important for us today. The men and the women do not blend together. You can tell them apart in this worship service. They are not just this ugly human blob. There's distinction. There's male and female distinction. And it's obvious and clear as soon as you 
walk into the room. Who stands out? The women stand out. The women stand out. The single women, if we're to read this whole passage, the single women stand out with their long, beautiful hair. In this first century church. Listen to verse 14 and 15. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? My son Peyton is squirming right now. All right, so this is first century Corinth, not, not today. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is, it's a gift, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So it becomes clear that the single women stand out with their long, beautiful hair, but who among the women especially stand out? And picture this. Who among the women especially stand out? And it is the married women with their what? With their head coverings. It is the married women who stand out in this worship service. But just picture this and think about this. The head coverings don't hide them. I think that's how people think of this. The head coverings don't imagine seeing this. The head coverings do not hide them. The head coverings point out who the married women are in the gathered church of God. That's significant. They stand out. Now, why? Why does Paul want these married women to stand out in a worship service? So let's read his reason again in verse 7. Why does he want these married women to have... Why does he advocate this head covering? Why does he want them to stand out in this worship service? Verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. The women are the glory. I wonder... Do you see what Paul just did with that totem pole? Remember the totem pole? God the Father, God the Son, the husband, and then the wife. Well, do you see in these verses what Paul just did with that totem pole? He took it out of the ground and he flipped it completely upside down. Where she is on display. Where she stands out. Ladies, when it comes to authority, when it comes to authority, you are at the bottom. That is for a reason. And here's the good reason. And the reason is that when it comes to glory, you are on the top. When it comes to authority, you're at the end and, oh gee, why am I at the end? Everybody else has people to boss around but me. and That's how it might feel. But you're at the end so that you can be in the front. So that you can be a display. What did Paul say? Think about this. 
Men, he said, don't, don't cover your head. He said, men, you are the glory of God. And then he said, a woman is the glory of man. He said, men, you are the glory of God. Both created in the image of God. We've already squared that one up. But men, you are the glory of God. And women, you are the glory of man. Now, you might hear that and think and think that doesn't sound as good. I want to just be the glory of man. I want to be the glory of God. Being the glory of God sounds more significant than being the glory of man. Well, let me just say that a different way. A woman is the glory of the glory of God. A woman is the glory of man. But who is man? What did he just tell us in that verse? Man is the glory of God. So what is a woman? What is his wife? She is the glory of the glory of God. She is the pinnacle of the pinnacle. She is the crown of the crown. A wife is the glory of the glory of God. Remember Genesis 1 and 2. Remember, man was made from what? Dirt. That works. That makes sense to me. The raw material used to create man was dirt. What was the raw material used to create the woman? The glory of God. We just told man is the glory of God. She is not, we looked at this last week, she is not an afterthought. God saved the best for last. She was his grand finale. So we're finding it right here in verse 7. This is our first point. Ladies, you are glory. You are glory in the garden and you are glory today. You are a public display of God's infinite beauty and worth. And our culture wants to blur that and to wash that all out and just make us this ugly human blob. And we lose the glory. In that worship service, the glory stood out. Ladies, you are glory. The rest of Scripture testifies to this. Think about how women are described throughout the Bible in ways that men are not described. <laughs> Never like this. She is, Proverbs twelve four, the crown of her husband. The crown of her husband. Psalm 128.3, she is like a fruitful vine within her home. Proverbs 31.10, she is far more precious than jewels. What is all that? Crown, fruitful vine, jewels. Men are not described that way in the Bible. She is glory. She is beauty. She is a crown. She is a jewel. So ladies, you are glory. And here's a practical application of this truth. If you are glory, cultivate beauty within and without. You are glory. Cultivate beauty within and without. It is both and. You are body and soul. Christian women have a tendency to neglect one or the other. 
We all have this tendency. We're driving on this road. There's a ditch on both sides, and we have tendencies to fall into one of those ditches. Christian women have a tendency to neglect one or the other, to focus on the physical while neglecting the spiritual. That's a problem. Or to focus on the spiritual while neglecting the physical. Also, the problem. Think about this. What does how you look and how you speak and how you dress say about God? What's the sermon? What is how you look and, and how you speak and, and how you dress? What does that communicate? What does that preach aesthetically about who God is? One side idolizes beauty, and that's wrong, and doesn't just see it as a tool to bring God glory, but sees it as an end in and of itself, and it's not. One side idolizes beauty, and the other side is afraid of beauty. Both wrong. You should wisely cultivate beauty within and without. Adorn yourself inwardly. Adorn yourself inwardly. And this is most important. According to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit, a spirit that rests in the gospel of Jesus Christ and is therefore free to love with no selfish ambition. Cultivate that inwardly. That's beautiful. And adorn yourself outwardly. You are body and soul. Pay attention to 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10, and make sure that you're not dressing in a way that is ostentatious. Make sure you're not dressing in a way that is seductive. The goal when you dress is not to make other women jealous. The goal is to display the beauty and the glory of God. Remember that you are the crown of your husband. You are a jewel. You are a fruitful vine. Now understand, and I want to be careful, there is no standard model for this. We can't hold up any and should never hold up any particular woman like in this case and say that's what it looks like and that's what you must do and that's what you must go after and that is the way it must be done. We can't say that. And of course you must do this within your means. But remember that you are glory. How does the way you look and the way you dress and the way you present yourself and the way you speak, what does that communicate about the infinite worth and value of God? And number two, our second and final statement, ladies, you glorify. Because you are glory, you glorify. You make things around you more beautiful. The people around you know this. You may not know this. The people around you know this. You're not just glory. You glorify. You make things around you more lovely. You make things around you more attractive. 
In our home, I make things, I've realized this. In our home, I make things more, for the most part, practical. And my wife makes things more beautiful. Our home would look terrible if my wife wasn't there. She'll have a piece of furniture that she wants to bring into the house and she'll rightly tell me where I am to put that piece of furniture. And I'll give her some kind of back chat. That's not going to work there. There's not room for it there. And you can't hang it there. And you can't set it there. And and I'm going to bump it when I'm watching TV. And this isn't going to... And then we put it there, and it looks, it looks great. <laughs> it looks beautiful. She makes things in the home more beautiful. Um, she makes food beautiful. You can make food beautiful. So last night, we sat down for a meal. We have a tradition in our home every Saturday night. We call it Sabbath dinner, and we kick off our day of rest, and we have this great meal together as a family. And last night, we had this shepherd's pie, and it was just, it was just, it was beautiful. The table was beautiful, and it was, and it was decorated. And so before anybody opened their mouth, right, before, before we even read the Bible, I'm being ministered to. I'm, I'm seeing the beauty and the glory of God. She decorates our home, makes it pretty, makes it beautiful. When you hear things like bachelor pad, beauty doesn't come to mind. <laughs> I mean, just that very term. Bachelor pad means there's, there's not a woman there. And when you think of bachelor pad, you don't think of something that, that looks good. But my third year of college, I never even changed my bed sheets. <laughs> I, that's foul, I know. I actually mean that literally. I never changed my sheets. My wife teases me about this. When they, when they just got funky, I just put more sheets on top of them. <laughs> like 10 layers of sheets by the end of the school year. That's terrible. That's terrible. That's ugly. That, 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 that looks bad. That smells bad. Everything. She makes our home look beautiful. She makes our kids look wonderful. Some of you know the Sundays where she's been sick and I'm in charge of getting the kids ready and out the door and they show up here. It's like, what happened to these children? They don't even look like the same kids. That really happened. One time they didn't even have shoes on. You are glory and you glorify. You are a display and you make other things display. You are beautiful and you beautify. You are adornment and you adorn. Who you are as a woman and what you do as a woman is an ongoing sermon on the infinite beauty and worth of God. So here is the question, getting even more practical, that you should always be asking. How can I make this more beautiful? How can I make this more beautiful? This home, this family, this church, this meal, this yard, this neighborhood, this hospital, this life, this space. I'll give you a a very recent example. I couldn't believe it. I walked in the church today um, and I walked back to this kitchen area and the kitchen did not look beautiful last week and it looks beautiful this week. 
And I noticed other places in the... I have a suspicion who it is. I'm not sure, so I won't say. But I know it wasn't a guy. (laughs) I know that. But it was, I, I walked, I walked in the kitchen and I wanted, I wanted to stay there. No, really, I walked in, I wanted to stay there. It was beautiful. It felt, it felt warm. It felt inviting. It was saying something. It was reflecting the beauty and the glory of God. A godly woman is constantly Even if you don't know you're doing it, consciously and unconsciously, you're making beauty. She adorns herself, her husband, her children, her home, her church, her dinner table, her feet, her hands, her neck, her hair, her front door, her kitchen, and on and on. And remember, we said this last week, this work is very hard work. This is very hard work. This is a difficult, ongoing work. If you embrace this, glorifying and beautifying It is such hard work. You clean a house and you make it beautiful and then people show up and mud comes through the front door. You want to to cover all the couches, right? And those, when I was a kid, we had plastic on our couches. I don't know if any of you had it, like the couches were all covered in plastic to keep them clean. You put on makeup and you wash it off at night. You make a beautiful meal. Beautiful meal like last night. This table looked beautiful. And an hour later, it looked horrible. It was, what, 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 what was that beautiful meal? It was, it was gone. And then in the sink was a pile of dirty dishes. You put on a pretty blouse. You spill coffee on it. When we see something beautiful... What, what do we do, especially today in our culture? When we see something beautiful, what do we do? We take a picture. I find myself doing that all the time. We, we freeze it. We're trying to hold on to it because we know, we know it doesn't last. This is hard work. You glorify, you beautify You make things beautiful. You make things glorious. You make them attractive. You make them lovely. And then it gets ugly again. And you start all over again, creating beauty over and over and over again. A final question to ask with regard to this. Who are you creating beauty for? That's very important. Make beauty, but who are you making beauty for? It cannot be for yourself. It cannot be to get the praise of others. It's for your husband, good. It's for your children, good. For your family, good. For your friends, for your church, good. For Christ, ultimately, amen. In conclusion, the gospel is the good news that Jesus came, lived, suffered, died, rose again in the place of sinners so that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to God. That is the good news. And one of the things that God is doing, I mean, here we are in the middle of his story, 
One of the things that God is doing, he is by the power of the gospel, making all things new. He is making all things beautiful. Everything is in the process of restoration. God is taking all the ugly out. And by the time we get the end of the story or the beginning of the end of the story, by the time we get to the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more ugly. Only glory. Only beauty. Ladies, you are a key part of God's plan here. An indispensable, irreplaceable part of God's plan here. Please consider what we've looked at today. Consider what we've talked about today and how you can, through your gifts and your abilities, bring glory to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, God. It is true that all of your word is good and is helpful for us. As we think about the words that we've studied today, for the rest of this day and in the week to come, and I pray that you give us more clarity, that you would give us more understanding. I pray that all the ladies here this morning would be encouraged to know how they are a part of your great purpose and plan. I pray that they would be encouraged to see themselves as glory and those who make glory. I pray also for the men here that you would give us a greater and deeper appreciation of the beauty you've surrounded us with. We ask God that the, the rest of our morning would be for your praise and in your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.